0: Hello and welcome to the fifth episode of this year's A's for Architecture with me Ambrose Gillick. Today it's two for the price of one as I speak with the architects and scholars Sophie Pelsmakers and Elizabeth Donovan about their book Designing for the Climate Emergency, a guide for architecture students. Co-written with Ursula Kozminska and Aidan Hoggard and published by the REBA in June this year.
1: We keep on looking to this sort of encyclopedia of fantastic buildings and we still somehow refer to them as those was done, were done by the masters and we still want to recreate those buildings. But when we are trying to kick off of fossil fuels and of injustices, you know, that we actually don't want to damage the planet or other people and other ecosystems, wherever it is on the world, through our actions, we can no longer create that same kind of architecture because that architecture was made possible exactly by getting cheap resources from halfway around the world, by not worrying about orientation because we could just pump fossil fuels in it to keep it warm and to to cool these buildings. So understanding that legacy and appreciating those buildings and the beauty for what they are, that they were of their time and then understanding how we need to move on for that for the problems of our time is key.
2: A is for Architecture, a podcast about architecture, buildings, urban culture and space.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode of A is for Architecture. I'm today here with Sophie Pelsackers and Elizabeth Donovan um, to talk about their new book, Designing for a Climate Emergency, for the Climate Emergency, uh, published by REBA this year. Um, Sophie, starting with you, would you be so kind as to introduce yourself?
1: Hi. Um, yeah. So, by the way, it's fantastic. You actually pronounced my surname correctly. <laughs> so, so I'm Sophie Um, And I'm currently associate uh, professor in sustainable housing design and sustainable architecture in Finland. Um, and um, I guess sort of maybe briefly what I want to share about my background, how I got into sustainability, so I sort of fell into it. I think uh, contrary to Liz, she probably chose this more proactively. Um, I uh, ended up, I'm uh, not sure if I wanted to be an architect when um, I was in Belgium, where I originally am from, where I did my undergraduate. And I then had heard that you could do um, like a year out in part one uh, in the UK. And so I moved to the UK. And when I then had to decide where I was going to do my master's, I ended up going to the University of East London. And I was told that I should pick one supporting theory course. And there was a whole list. I was just giving a sheet of the paper and there was a whole list of different subjects like history, theory, landscape, architecture, sustainability, and so on. Um, and the first one was actually environmental design uh, and uh, energy studies. And it was the first one that I just went along to the introduction. I just never left. <laughs> For me, it was like this homecoming, suddenly understanding that... Um, there was a bigger responsibility um, to being an architect and just designing what mostly in Belgium I was doing in my undergrad, um, buildings from mostly rich people were um, sort of, yeah, quite one-off kind of projects, but um, also a lot of architects tend to do. Um, and so for me, it really gave meaning to the role of being an architect as societal um, kind of impact and relevance. And yeah, and that's how I fell into it and never left. <laughs> so mm-hmm. And that's now more than 20 years. Well, how long is that now? We're talking um, 1999. So that's quite some time now. Um, and so I've been dedicating myself for the last two decades to uh, studying sustainable architecture, researching it, teaching it. And also, of course, I've, I've also practiced it as well. Um, that's about me.
0: So you are a you are a fully qualified part three total architect, are
1: you? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Wow. Yeah.
0: And you build buildings.
1: Um, I did until I co-built buildings, co-designed buildings uh, until uh, 2009 when I was at Lever Bernstein Architects. And then I ended up going full time into education. Uh, It was a very, um, um, the decision was very much based on the fact that I felt I could make a bigger impact because I was teaching then at the time at East London Uni, something like 160 students a year rather than one project every five years in a few competitions and some sustainability advice on, on a handful of others in the practice. And so I felt that I could make a bigger impact mm-hmm. by planting more seeds through students who would then go on and practice themselves and teach and and it's fantastic because when I now see what some students have been up to, a lot of them are now in ACAN, have started ACAN, uh, so the Architects Climate Action Network. Um, they're really a part of like um, changing the debate in the United Kingdom, especially, but also in other countries. So, um, and then I have, I was in consulting, acting as a consultant, um, sustainability consultant in practice for quite a few years as well. But since I then left because of Brexit, um, in 2018, I first was in Denmark, where I met Liz, um, and then it's been, of course, a bit harder to uh, get engaged in practice when you're not when you don't necessarily speak the language and so on. But I think it's something I'd like to do longer term as well, not just be an academic. But yeah,
0: brilliant! Well, lovely introduction, um, amazing, um, Elizabeth or Liz, um, you're a, you're a Kiwi. You're a long way from home.
2: I am. I yeah, I'm from New Zealand. Um, and I have a very long winded story on how I got to where I am now, but wow. I'll try and, try and keep it short because not most, most of it's not related to architecture. Um, <laughs> but I did, <laughs> I did my undergrad in New Zealand um, and then I moved to Europe um, and I knew I wanted to do my masters, but I didn't really know how or when or why or what to do. Um, and it was a sort of pivotal moment that it's only when I look back at it now, I kind of understand it. At the time, I sort of everything just fell into place and it didn't seem like I made that many conscious decisions. But I remember one moment I was living in Italy and in New Zealand, um, I grew up with a hole in the ozone layer. I grew up with on the hour, every hour when they did the temperature, they also told you what the burn rate was, which was usually between 10 and 15 minutes. And that was just a part of my Everyday life, it was a very normal thing, um, and things like at school you weren't allowed outside unless you're wearing a hat, and all of these, you know, strange rules. And being in Italy, and someone questioning why I was putting sunscreen on, and I was like, "Well, <laughs> I'm gonna fry," and they're like, "But what do you mean?" And I was like, "I, I don't understand." And that was my first realization that the hole in the ozone layer didn't affect the whole world, but sort of was mostly um, concentrated on the bottom of the southern hemisphere. Um, And the sort of unfairness and the how unjust it was that sort of I grew up, you know, there's massive amounts of skin cancer and stuff that's happening in New Zealand and Australia. um, And that it wasn't our fault. And this is a problem that came from sort of especially the northern hemisphere, and that I had to deal with that. And that really made me question, my role as a human um, and my role within sustainability um, so I moved to Sweden to do my master's in a double master's in design for sustainable development and architecture um, and that's sort of what bec- yeah got me really interested in it especially in my undergrad I mean I took sustainability courses but we were trying to build solar panels out of old CDs and things like that and it didn't really give me that much joy because it was sort of the ad hoc DIY recycling approach to sustainability and I didn't really see how that would fit in practice so being in Sweden really opened up my eyes to especially Scandinavians way of dealing with sustainability and how it can be embedded from many aspects from you know material social cultural um, environmental Um, and then after that I finished my master's and I (laughs) went into practice and I was full of energy and was going to change the world and, you know, had all this knowledge about sustainability and then hit a very conventional practice and was like, why is this not a conversation? Like, <laughs> what are we, what are we doing? What, like, how, how is this possible? And the resistance that I met um, in practice about very, very simple things like why don't we change the orientation so it has better daylight um, and, you know, really, really simple things. Um and then that made me go back and uh, do my PhD, which was about the disconnection between our discourse and practice. We have all the knowledge. Um, we have a lot of the resources, but we still don't implement sustainability in practice. So that was the focus of my PhD in Aarhus. Um, You're like the perfect then...
0: guest for this podcast.
2: <laughs> and then I never left. So I've been teaching and doing research in Denmark for eight years and very, very privileged to work with Sophie. and. Um, we share a lot of common interests and a lot of common frustrations. Um, and that's also with Ulla and Aidan, who we wrote the book with. And that's how, yeah, we got to where we are now.
0: Well, that's a, brilliant, that's a really lovely set of introductions and it touches on a load of the, the themes. The book is wonderful. I mean, it's a beautifully illustrated, beautifully presented thing. And it's very seductively written. And you've you have reached beyond academia by writing something that is amenable to younger people. I mean, this is kind of the part of the idea of this podcast is to is to disambiguate academic discourse. He said using perhaps the most academic sounding phrase possible, um, because there's nothing like uh, establishing boundaries between you and your listeners. No, uh, but this idea of, of of that you talk about of breaking down this barrier, I think, is really important. And your book does that. But I, I wanted to pick up on something Sophie said. You talk, Sophie, about this idea of a bigger responsibility. So you're about the same um, architectural vintage as me, I think. Um, uh, I think you must be, started two years before me. Um, And I don't know about you, but when I was studying, I did feel quite strongly that there was no, that we were sort of like ornament makers. We were sort of like big ornament makers. That was the that was the millennial period, wasn't it? You know, stupid shaped buildings and big ornaments. Guggenheim Museum. Is this kind of sustainability thing? Do you think? Does it have something to do with legitimately, uh, obviously, um, imbuing architecture with a sense of agency and purpose? Again, is this what we're trying? Is this? You know, that free architecture of the late 20th, early 21st century, which has bound, you know, deconstructed and whatever. It's very difficult to do, like, it's very difficult to measure the quality of it, isn't it? I mean, yeah. Sophie, Sophie, do you, do you, do you feel like that? Was it like one of these moments where you go, "Oh, look, someone's got some rules I can apply"? It's almost like coming across like we were given the green Vitruvius. I don't know if you ever came across the green Vitruvius.
1: Yes, of course, it was, it was our like, Bible. "Oh, look, there's yeah. some rules." Yeah, 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 yeah. And of course, uh, the other book, the Environment Design Pocket Book, is very much around those that distilling that key information so you can use it. Um, in kind of easy ways and we can but the idea was really so we can spend more of our time designing instead of trying to find the information we need but I'm really pleased I mean glad that you asked the question about this sort of agency and this bigger meaning Um, because for me actually sustainability has never been about the rules and the fact I've got something that I can grasp but actually that I as a human being um, can help create a better world and Mm -hmm. understand how I can do that um, and of course, when you get to some of the building physics, then rules are handy, but we also work with other consultants, we don't have to know everything as architects, but it's good that we know a lot of things so we can have the conversation with uh, other stakeholders. But, you know, in, in the Designing for the Climate Emergency book, Um, we have these 10 themes and the first theme even though we don't actually put them in any order the first theme we did actually put because we thought that was the global thing is really about global responsibility and future um, uh, future and global responsibility really and um, and that's really to reflect that ultimately we are global citizens and we do have a responsibility as a global citizen and somehow You know, our own values and position in life, we leave that behind us when we enter the architecture practice. We sort of put that coat or that hat up, you know, and put it at the entrance of the door. And then we don't make decisions in the same way. And for me, then, sustainability was really about understanding climate change and that there's actually bigger meaning to buildings and an impact of buildings that I can help reduce and minimize. And now, of course, our language has changed, not just anymore minimizing, but about restoring and trying to undo the previous damage, but also realizing that decisions we make affect people, communities, nature, ecosystems, thousands of miles away from actually where the building site might be. And, um, you know, I don't think that that was a discussion even at 20, 25 years ago. Um, then it was, and I've also sort of gone a bit in, and I'm sure Liz will add to this as well, but um, I've also come a bit full circle in the sense that when you first learn and sort of hard one. All of the building physics and the more technical aspects, then you go, okay, carbon is the most important thing, and energy and CO2 and so on, right? And all of that, and reducing all of those things and, and making sure that um, you know, we reduce climate change and this mitigation of climate change. And then as you understand how we're going to achieve it, you realize that we can't achieve this without actually people in community and looking at health and well being and what does that mean. And also, then suddenly biodiversity becomes hugely important. Um, you know, and and, and a lot of the social aspects. So then they start becoming important again. So in a way that's where then I've ended up with this sort of holistic approach to sustainable architecture. In the end, um, you know, if we have this clean zero carbon world, but if we have no music, no delight, no beauty, um, no health and well-being, um, no birds that we hear sing, what's the point of living in that world ultimately, you know? So, it, you know, and then of course, climate change adaptation has also now become more and more important as we just discussed the sort of hot temperatures across Europe and the world have been um, also really quite eye-opening, I think, to many people and the pandemic as well as also the implications, but I'll shut up there.
0: What do you think, Liz?
2: I agree a lot with what <laughs> Sophie's Sophie's um, just said. That it's a, it's about so much more um, than the sort of technocratic solutions to the problem. It's so sort of holistic. Mm-hmm. um in nature and it's it's messy. Sustainability is is messy and difficult and complex. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is it is really hard and it's changing, you know, all the time. Um, as our problems change, it's also um yeah difficult because the you're having to set out new problems with each, you know, every country has its own context or every place has its own context. And what's sustainable for one place is not sustainable for another place. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's a really, really difficult thing to solve. And it makes then the architecture which solves these sort of transdisciplinary problems, um, also a very difficult thing to do. Yeah.
0: I mean, that's interesting. You mentioned transdisciplinarity, which has which has justice, like compared to interdisciplinarity it has, mm. it, it is based around a concept of justice. And you mentioned justice before, which I thought was really mm. key, this idea of environmental justice. Um, mm. I remember when I started my PhD, I read a wonderful book called, what was it called? Structure. It was about structural violence. Anyway, it was by a man called Paul Farmer, who nearly won the Nobel Prize, died, died of COVID actually, um, quite young, um, uh, uh, Pathologies of Power. And the book was about, it was an amazing book. It was actually about HIV and TB treatment in um, Haiti and Russia, I think. It's not really about architects, but it was very inspiring for me because it was about this idea of, this kind of the, the, the kind of distribution of um, unjust outcomes um, through these transnational and global practices. And it's quite interesting, I, I suppose. So you're right, Sophie, perhaps, that we are global citizens, but isn't what we're dealing with the problem of globalisation? Isn't sustainability a response to globalisation in that we've got these an infrastructure of oil essentially. we, we, we and, and our architecture is really the architecture of the infrastructure of oil.
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. It's actually, architecture has been spatializing um, capitalism, you know, um, the for-profit world. Mm-hmm. And we've been very complicit in that. But it's, of course, bigger than just oil, right? It's also um, natural resources we've been plundering around the world. And it goes actually back to you know, colonial times, if you really start looking into it. And I think, I actually think that's why this, um, this whole idea of justice, environmental justice, climate justice, social justice uh, are all interconnected racial justice as well. Um, And it does come back to the very few that started to exploit, um, you know, people, communities, countries for the benefit of the few. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think Um, Sustainability is is a response to that, but it's it's very much, to me, I see not only a solution, but it must tackle that as well. So Mm -hmm. that's also why sustainability can't just be about carbon and and energy use and oil and reducing that. It must also look at this inclusivity aspects as well and and try to restore those aspects as well.
0: Um, Could you talk a little bit about this idea of a holistic sustainability? Because I try and teach on that. Um you know obviously, <clears throat> and I said in my email to you yesterday, and you raised a question about this, Sophie, about this idea of in architecture schools over here and I don't know what it's like in 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 your in in Denmark and Finland, but sustainability still is very much linked to kind of technical research units within architecture schools. you know we do design over here, we have history and theory over there, and never the twain shall meet, and then we do we have t and e you know technical and engineering lectures from our specialists in sustainability and it's this funny add-on um i've been doing marking just before we started talking i was doing marking on this and it's it's this add-on it's got like five marks associated so how do we how do what what does what do you mean by holistic because most for most students environmentalism sustainability is an add-on it's five percent and it looks like triple glazing and it looks like solar shading bruce or whatever it is
1: uh, let's, let's answer that, because I mean, ultimately, I mean, I'm happy to, but I think that she's better placed because it's very closely related to her research, her PhD research especially, um, and the ch- the shifts that have been happening over time as well. But I think uh, from a Finnish perspective and also being in them, I think it's still often regarded like that and with a book we try to actually integrate all of those aspects. And that's why we refer to these 10 themes, uh, climate emergency design themes. And when you do all of them to high standards, then you have holistic, sustainable architecture. So just having a carbon neutral building on its own is not enough. Equally, um, undertaking democratic processes with users isn't enough to call it holistic, sustainable architecture. But Liz, yeah, you, you'd, how long do you have for expand? <laughs>
0: Yeah, Condense your PhD. In
1: minutes.
2: <laughs> but it, I mean, it is one of the biggest challenges that we have that sustainability is still considered an add on. It's still considered the sort of other um, and it's not integrated. And I think until we integrate sustainability in the design process from the absolute very start, we're not going to get very far. But this is a problem we've been, you know, facing for <laughs> quite some decades and it's still sort of not changing. Um, And from a lot of what the research that I can do, there is a clear sort of divide between projects that the sustainability brief was implemented from day one. And then those that have sort of tried to certify their building or tried to make it sustainable after the concept is already um, complete. And those buildings tend to sort of, I don't like to rank them, but tend to sort of measure up pretty badly in terms of sustainability because it's not part of the whole concept. And it's also the types of projects where when it comes to budgeting or cost cutting, things get removed, the solar panels get removed, the great windows get removed because they're not core to the concept. But when you have a sustainable building that encompasses the sort of social, the environmental, the material, um, all of these aspects as part of their core concept, it's really hard to remove them later in the process because they are designed into the project. Um, Yeah, so it's a a really big problem, but it needs to be tackled. And I think it needs to be tackled in education, how we write our briefs, how we present it to the students, that it's not presented as an add-on, but it's presented as a core part of the design process because they're not mutually exclusive. I mean, things like good daylight, good orientation, natural ventilation, uh, aesthetically beautiful building, ethical material choices. For me, that's you know part of what a good building should have um, as a sort of basis. Um,
0: yes, yeah, so you see, there's a early on in the book, you, you write, um, you write climate emergency design requires a cultural shift and new ethical position. And I thought, oh, you've got to tell me what that new ethical position is. You've got to tell me what the cultural shift that we're moving towards this. And it, obviously, it's an encyclopedia that you're talking about of information of ideas. Because you you, you um, Liz, you explained very, I think very well, it's messy, and that ain't architecture. Like no one wants messy architecture, like no one's employing an architect to get more messy. You just go to the builder if you want. So, so how do we what does this messiness look like? But but maybe, maybe before, what is this new ethical position? What what <clears throat> Obviously, there's an imperative, there's a kind of biological, shall we say, or environmental imperative. But the ethical, how do we, like, where are we getting to with this ethical position? What is this ethical position? And it's something, as you said, to, to do with justice, but it's something else as well. Is, I mean, can it be summed up?
1: Should I? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I... This is actually in our Archive Change project, which we also have in common that we work on. Um, we are looking at research into how we best um, kind of resolve these issues. And Essie Nieselman, who also did some of the images together with Liz, uh, who were the key people for all of the image creation and so on. And of course, and we also have half of them are from our students as well, who allowed us to reuse them. So um, that's a fantastic thing. But Essie uh, and Liz and some others have been looking at what does it mean, this ethical position and the values that we talk about. Mm -hmm. I think the key here is that This is not something we can say what that must be, but it does mean understanding that we have an impact, that it comes from a deep um, tradition of how we as architects refer to our own culture of architecture and architects, and that we keep on looking to this sort of Um, encyclopedia of fantastic buildings and we still somehow refer to them as those were done by the masters and we still want to recreate those buildings. But when we are trying to kick off of fossil fuels and of injustices, you know, that we actually don't want to damage the planet or other people and other ecosystems, wherever it is on the world through our actions, we can no longer create that same kind of architecture. Because that architecture was made possible exactly by getting cheap resources from halfway around the world, by not worrying about orientation because we could just pump fossil fuels in it to keep it warm and to to cool these buildings. So understanding that legacy and appreciating those buildings and the beauty for what they are, that they were of their time, and then understanding how we need to move on for that for the problems of our time is key uh, as part of that. But in architecture, we still tend to refer to those buildings as if that's what we should all be aiming for, without necessarily critically looking at them, that the legacy of them, the other side of it, and why that they're really difficult to recreate in, in today's world. And so for me, it's always a little bit like um, maybe the best metaphor I can use is um when I talk um. To policymakers in the city or other architects, people often think, yeah, you yeah, know, I know how to calculate carbon, I know that these materials are good or bad, but often people cannot judge the, when they're good or bad, in which context. We want often very simple answers to very complex, messy questions and problems. And it's very situated and, and very contextual, all of it. And, and when I speak then with um with others in industry and students as well. Um, one of the things that I realize is that a lot of us don't realize how what we really mean by a transformation and shift in culture and values. And the best metaphor I think I can give is, for example, when people think of it, well, we just need more solar panels on, on buildings and we just need electric cars and we just need to have uh, basically clean fuel and more energy efficient buildings and then we're good. But actually, we fundamentally need to change how much we consume how we live our lives, how we move around the city. So it's not just changing all of the fossil fueled cars to clean fueled electric cars. We need to actually fundamentally drive around a lot less and move around the city in very different ways. And that's the shift that we need that I don't think most architects or teachers at the moment actually even understand. And that's the shift we need through understanding climate change and our impact in that system much, much better. And then uh, perhaps, and I'll finish on this, one of the things that um, Esther Nissan has been working on in her master's thesis as part of the Archive Change Project, and I think also Liz has been working on this in the past and in her own teaching, is that um, we cannot get to... Uh, these discussions, if we keep teaching architecture in the same way, which is that sort of not integrating sustainability, but also through the methods of master-apprentice and, you know, rather than more democratic methods and through discussion and through workshops or by a group of people together with the teacher actually really, um, you know, try to get it, gain a deeper understanding of the issue at hand and position themselves within that. And so for me, a lot of now... um, my work I see is not about trying to make information more accessible, there's a plethora of books and information already available, but it is actually um, uh, trying to get that culture shift going through discussion with students and that awareness so that once they have that, they know how to use that information in whichever situation or where to find information as the grounding of that, if that makes sense, rather than having these ready-made kind of answers. I think it's the underlying values of it. Um, You know, and it, it also comes back to us as an individual and a global citizen, ultimately. You know, when we do certain actions or decide not to buy things from certain places, we need similar positions like that as architects, lines that we don't cross, things that we believe in, that we stand for, and that we apply that in our own architecture thinking as well. It's those values that I think... We miss, and I think we at the moment still refer to a lot of the values we have going back to um, our old traditions. Um, and you know, and I think we have to actually leave some of those values and traditions and systems thinking behind. Yeah,
0: Liz, what do you reckon?
1: I, that, that was I a mean, really
0: br- that was a really brilliant answer.
1: <laughs> very long, I'm so sorry I don't mean no, really, no, no. it
0: was a really rich answer it was a wonderful <laughs> like exposition but Liz, I, I because you're I mean <clears throat> Sophie, I'm not being rude I, I think Liz is younger than us um,
1: she is, by a bit with me at no least, least. <laughs>
0: and I wonder whether you have a different kind of uh, well, and an, yeah, a different perspective as well, like what is this I don't. You. What is this ethical position?
2: Yeah, I think it's hard to put, um, to sort of define what the, the sort of ethical position or sort of cultural change is exactly. Um, in terms of it is incredibly complex and it encompasses uh, a lot of different things. Um, a way that I've been dealing with it with my students. I mean, especially I teach in Denmark, which is a one of the most priv- privileged places in the world I mean my students get paid to study every single one of them Um, so you know I'm coming from a context of you know we're one of the countries that uses the most resources you know have one of the biggest uh, footprints and you know it's a idealistic in many many ways Um, and it's the understanding of consequences of actions and for me that's the way that I'm starting to try and get my students to understand that you know we have to make decisions we have to well, we can question whether we should be designing more buildings or not, but at least within the education, you know, they have to uh, have design projects and understanding what is the consequence of of a decision and is that then the best decision or is there another decision that can be made that has a lesser consequence or has a different consequence? Because especially within sustainability, there's no one right answer. There is no perfect solution. There's always going to be a consequence to um, every action maybe an example sorry the seagulls are flying above me um, <laughs> an example um could be that I was teaching first year in materials and I asked them to pick one material and to go off and research where does it come from how is it produced you know what is its carbon footprint and um one of the students were like okay we're going with cedar it's the most widely used exterior cladding in Denmark it's timber so it's sustainable it's renewable blah 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 I was like okay that's great and then they came back five minutes later and we're like oh Liz but our cedar comes from Canada I was like okay well (laughs) what what are you what are your other options weigh it up what is you know ethically does it is that okay to bring uh, timber from Canada and does it outweigh what the other solutions would be which would probably be brick and the energy that's used for that so I think it's about making especially with my teaching and students making students aware of what is the sort of ethical consequence to the decisions that they make and then educating them to be able to take a position as Sophie say to be able to stand behind that and say you know what this is the best decision I could have made I understand that these are the consequences but you know I feel comfortable ethically being able to stand here and present this project or present this building with these decisions.
0: Really really good I, I like this um I mean one of the things Going back to what you were saying, Sophie, in your exposition of the kind of ethic, one of the things you didn't say, but I'm assuming from the book and from what you've written and drawn in the book, and your students have drawn, is that the architecture also not architecture also makes the social, cultural, and environmental form. So it's not only that we form architecture, but architecture in in the end forms our uh, forms us, and this kind of feeds off ideas of Bruno Latour's actor network theory and new materialism and and ideas around this idea that there's a Western Western modern idea about the relationship of humans to materials and the choices we make about materials, which is that materials are passive and environments are passive. And that actually a reframing of that gives them agency. Um, gives them character and um, and means that we have to interrelate with them differently. But this is a this is you know this paradigm shift you're talking about is an enormous one.
1: Yeah. I mean, I want to even push that a bit further, as Liz says, often in architecture schools, we have to create projects, usually they're built projects, Mm -hmm. one of the things if we're really going to challenge them, particularly the climate emergency, or even biodiversity emergencies, does it always mean building new, does it mean building at all, is sometimes, is perhaps the role of the architect, maybe acting as a facilitator, um, to help a community decide how they can reuse space or not to build at all or for mm. to create an open space. So I think it actually um, really also questions the role of architecture and our role as architects. And of mm. course, Donna Petrescu is, is very much working in this area and really reframing um, what the job of an architect is, what the role is. It's not always designing buildings in the way we think, in the traditional way or at all. Um, sometimes it's processes. And I think that's actually really inspirational, really interesting. But I also fear that if we as a, as our own uh, architecture culture, if we keep on hanging on to this value where the architect used to have all the power to design everything from the chairs to the lamps to the uh, door handles and name it in the building that the architect designed, then we are never going to create that paradigm shift because we will always be um, regretting or lamenting that loss. Sorry for my English. English is not my first language, and um, yeah, I don't speak with many first native speakers anymore. This is one of the few, so I'll, I'll forget how to pronounce certain words and, and words that I don't use. But if we always lament that loss, right? Of of that, the loss of the power of the architect, well, that's a real problem because ultimately that was never power we should have had to begin with. We were making decisions for users without asking them, including them. And that's very much what the sort of paradigm shift also includes. It's really questioning. Uh, it's not just about CO2, as I said before, and the energy issues, but really questioning actually how we create architecture mm-hmm. as well. Um, and that's big. Um, you yeah, know, I mean, that's a really
0: yeah. good point, this idea that, you know, it's like <clears throat> we've got our, um, we've got our uh, penicillin, what's that, uh, crisis where, you know, people are becoming immune um Yeah, what do they call that? Why have I forgotten the word penicillin? Antibiotics. <laughs> <The> antibiotics. <laughs> it's, late.
1: it's a late day after a long day of working for all of us. Meetings, yeah, back back. <laughs> but the
0: antibiotic crisis is because yeah. every time you go to a doctor, their job is to give you medicine. That's yeah. what they do. And so yeah. they look at every problem through the perspective of medicine. And they're also incentivized to, to, to it by pharmaceutical companies. And and architecture has become a bit like that. Our, our solution is always the biggest building mm. you can possibly get for that money. And it's been
1: quite interesting during COVID. Yeah, post- it's a very good metaphor actually, <laughs> the two. Yeah, and exactly, and it's not just on how, how we create architecture, but what is architecture? What is being an architect then, mm. if that shifts our role? And, and I think, and of course, that's the issue as well, is that then our accreditation, our validation processes, if they always require it's a build project, a building at the end, then that also is very difficult for any educator to make changes and to really get students to question whether they should be building at all on the site that they're investigating and what they should be building and how they then build it. So, and I think often in architecture at the moment in the discussion, what happens is we go right to the end. How do we build it? The pragmatic stuff, right? These practices. When for me, what has shifted is actually we should be asking all of those questions for should we be building at all, and you know, and the how is sort of what comes out at the very end of it if we decide we should, and that comes back to these values and that that paradigm shift we talk about when you when you understand what you're dealing with and these consequences that Liz talked about and the messiness of of, of uh, architecture, um, then I think. Um, the rest will follow how to the how to is actually going to be easy in a way. I mean, I'm doing inverted commas here. isn't easy because your values will help you make those decisions. Um, yeah.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I, I like this idea, but Liz, maybe you could explain what, um, what an architect of messy architecture looks like. Maybe that's something, maybe you have an image in your head of, 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 of how this person operates because you know, we've got the iron Rand fountainhead, the great genius who designs the terrifying building and imposes it on the world, and and they get their way. And, and Le is our and Mieslander are our kind of go-to. But we have them now as well. Rem Koolhaas, you know, genius designer, but the fact is, is that he is rarefied in a way that, like, like historical figures, like a Michelangelo. But what does this new type of architect look like? And and, and, often, and how do they operate?
2: I I think it's a very good question. It's a yeah. I think it's a, a tough um tough thing to explain. What does messy architecture look like? Because I actually think messy architecture looks very simple. I often refer to it to the quiet as the quiet architecture. It's not necessarily the architecture that stands out. It's not necessarily the architecture that's winning all the awards. It's not usually the architects that scream the loudest either. I think some of the most successful um, buildings and projects um, and ways of working and processes are these sort of quiet uh starting from sort of participation understanding the users not necessarily designing for the you know top one percent but designing everyday architecture for everyday people um so i think and i think when it becomes successful is when an architect manages to bring all of these complicated um issues together in a very simple solution um, and even though it is messy is Uh, Sophie was saying with the values, if you have clear values from you as an architect, from the participants or from the user, from the client um, of what you want to achieve and how you want a building to function or its role within a community or its space within a city, then it's actually the solutions can become very simple. um, And beautiful. and, And beautiful, even though the sort of the problems you're facing are
1: complex. Yeah. And messy for me the messiness is also about um or sort of the messiness of sustainable architecture to me also suggests we need to collaborate a lot more with so many other people like we're not necessarily the we we might be the project lead but we are more facilitators than leaders you know we're not the prima donnas like demanding and then passing our designs over to the engineers and they just have to do their thing and add whatever it is on top it's actually really collaborating from the very beginning with the engineers client users or user representatives and the ecologists landscape architects you know all of the other professions because we cannot do it alone it's too complex it's messy but within that we can create then um, a really integrated architecture quiet kind of not the stuff with loads of bling added on top and and you know that then might have maintenance and performance issues. And I also think perhaps sustainable architecture becomes messy over time, but beautiful because it's adaptable. It's stuff that can actually adapt the climate change to the needs of users. It can change it around. One building that stands out, which is actually quite old, um, well, older than me, um, <laughs> but it's uh, it's from the 1970s. as Lucien Cole in Belgium for the um, the uh, louvain um, la University, La Même it's um it was designed with for students um parts of it it's uh, it's actually quite standardized but parts of it the wooden parts were made by students um you know can be uh, replaced maintained students can change you know there's there's several rooms that are very similar but then there's a whole series of them that are very very different to meet different kind of student needs and it's hugely mm-hmm. popular even now but you would look at it and you would think God, that's really not what you think good architecture looks like. And mm. the older I've become, and the more I've studied sustainable architecture, the more I've actually come to appreciate it. And I think, sort of as Liz says, a lot of these um, sustainable architecture projects might not win awards, but that's because we're still judging architecture with our old values of, and sort of this sort of what you were saying, Ambrose, like, you know, sort of really building the largest projects you can within the budget given, you know, that's what we're still often valuing in, in our awards. And and that's sort of what I mean with our internal kind of uh, uh, values and in our internal architecture culture, that we're still using that to assess what sustainable architecture is, um, which is part of the problem, because then it perpetuates what we think it should look like. And actually, and I, I think Liz, um, you think the same that sustainable architecture has no look or style. It's very contextual. So It's very specific to that particular brief and context, location, available materials, uh, user needs. All of that. Um, there's no template, no blueprint for it. So it's not. It's not.
0: <clears throat> it's not a universalist language. No, Wh- which does mean that you yeah. exclude certain forms of architecture from what you define as sustainable architecture. The the glass and steel tower block briam excellent rated zero carbon 85 stories high city centre office block isn't really sustainable is it?
1: Generally, I would yeah. It would be it depends again on context and what the functions are within it. But I would say that yeah. Why are we still doing those buildings? Especially why are we still doing those buildings? Whether they're in London, Hong Kong, Copenhagen, Helsinki. Saudi
0: Arabia.
1: In yes, in in context exactly. So they really have become very non-contextual, and they're the opposite mm-hmm. of what actually sustainable architecture is and that's also what I meant earlier with this language. we still refer to these projects that are an amazing technical feat but um, that we still sort of pretend that we can just put clean energy in it and run it on clean energy and call it sustainable when well the most clean energy is the one you don't need to begin with whether it's from materials or operational energy Mm -hmm. use and they don't take into account other contextual issues and so on so Um, So it is actually really not contextual, therefore not not situated enough and not sustainable. Um, Yeah.
2: That maybe comes back to the idea of holistic sustainable architecture that even though they're bream, Platinum or whatever, holistically, I mean, I'm yet to see a massive sky rise that has sustainable material use um, or materials that have been ethically uh, produced um, or health, indoor, air quality, all of those things that are actually included within the project. So I think it can rank high on some aspects, but I, to my knowledge, I'm yet to see a, a high steel and glass tower that meets the other criteria, contributing to space, contributing to community, um, all of those things.
1: Yeah, and for example, a lot of these towers, we see them appearing in the Nordic region where the sun is very low. So they cast hundreds of meters of shadows on the surrounding uh, buildings that exist there. So what kind of neighbor building is, is super important, but that is not in the checklist, you know, of Briam and, and so on. So, and that's then the problem as well. We, um, uh, also very interesting work by Faith Engeno who did her PhD at Sheffield University. She's been talking about how Briam and Lead have been brought into africa particularly in kenya and how that that's now creating unsustainable buildings claiming they're sustainable compared to their local vernacular because it's encouraging exactly those material uses and those practices that are very Eurocentric that don't actually work in, in most European situa- uh, situations either, but definitely don't work um, when you don't have those resources that you need to import steel and concrete uh, bricks and so on from uh, around the world uh, into Africa. And then a normal um, building with local materials uh, can't be assessed uh, with BRIM or isn't assessed and is therefore uh, invisible in sustainability so the export also of our um sustainable technologies and the we can engineer our way out of it is is actually proven not to really hold up very well um yeah and it's quite it.
0: interesting covid was a, an amazing you know the, the the lockdowns and so on where these city centers london empty it was like a ghost town and and yet a productivity dipped but not all the way so people were working from home, and it, and it kind of revealed this extraordinary hubristic attitude of the modernist city, which, when you go to New York, you look at it and it's just amazing and as cool as hell. But probably there should only be one, and instead we we keep chucking them up, and you get the you know you get the um, your 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 um, lords lord architects in Britain putting up yet another block and telling us it's sustainable because none of the windows open and uh, and uh and it's kind of really odd because it's actually not necessary and i think that yeah the, the the idea of density and height and scale have kind of been blown apart a little bit which is something not many people are talking about that actually we with the internet and with kind of networks of information we can create this distributed democratic um flexible um, economic environment which which would require a totally different architecture and might yeah. free our yeah. city centers up.
1: Yeah. What we do need to be careful about, which I think the pandemic also really showed, is again the injustices, right? It it, it actually it um it highlighted existing injustices because it became mm-hmm. so much worse. It means that Um, when you had a spare room in your home i'm actually doing this from my study which wasn't the study before my study before uh, the pandemic that if you could adapt your home you had enough space and you could work from home with ease and still keep your productivity up and so on that's very different for people who didn't have the space don't have access to laptops and Mm -hmm. all the wi-fi uh, other kind of sort of digital infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that really showed as well the kind of sort of societal um in you know inequalities. It really made that more visible. Mm. And I think I hope that now as architects we're much more aware of these social injustices as well and then how our architecture can contribute to it or at least um, not contribute to it and, and hopefully restore some of that and create more inclusive kind of spaces and that least talked about, like, you know, how will some of these buildings do what does it give back to the public to the community, how does it create like people getting together. Um, I mean, there's a very interesting principle called radical inclusivity by Christoph and Kasia Nowratik who've ri- written about this and the idea that we can create even. Uh, private buildings that always give something back to the public. There could be a rooftop that gets used by the public, but also by animals. And so that's really being radically inclusive in all of our architecture, even if it is built with um yeah, kind of questionable, in questionable ways or norms. Um, so it's it's again this paradigm shift, you know, of thinking who is our client? Who are we designing for?
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that maybe, maybe we want, maybe it would be really nice if you could, because I you know, it's a great book and everybody should buy it, but, um, and I will teach using it as well and and, and promote it to my students. So I do think it is a, a very, very useful, um, but I was wondering maybe we could talk about what context is. So like, if we're looking at this kind of holistic idea of sustainability, we've got ecological, economic and, and social sustainability, the, the usual tri- triumvirate, although there's also cultural and human and various other subsections to that perhaps, or perhaps distinct spheres. But, but perhaps we could talk about how you would go about engaging with a, a, a context, a site, um, which I think is chapter one in your book, um, from, yeah, from the position of a, of a kind of holistic, sustainable approach.
1: Could I I think uh, Liz would be great to, to expand on that. But maybe before, it might be helpful to sort of also explain that what I think is quite unique and was actually one of the hardest things for me to do in the book, less hard, I think, for Liz, was the fact that we didn't just write another book that gives you loads of information in one go we try to write according to the process that the student goes through mm-hmm. so what do they need to know at which time in their design process what questions should they ask what should they look out for and that's of course where then chapter one starts with okay you go to science you know mm-hmm. the context what do you need to look out for Um, And that's sort of the approach we took. And it's one of the hardest things that I've ever done, because often we think when you have the knowledge, you just think of it in a holistic way. But how does a student, how can they find their way through these huge amounts of information Mm. of what to do when? And it was really trying to sort of ask these pertinent questions. And and some of them are very much value based as well. Mm -hmm. I can... um...
2: It may be also a, <laughs> a little bit before I talk about that on the idea of context that, I mean, in the book, it is context based. And I think all of the authors of the book, we really believe in context based um, architecture and that it's essential for, an, for a sustainable building to for it to respond to its context. And that requires huge amounts of research. It requires, especially when it comes to practice or a real building. Um, outside of your education it requires so many resources and that's sort of raises a question who pays for research who pays for the contextual analysis you know is that the role of or the job of the architect and you know how do you create that knowledge um, but the the idea of starting with the site and starting with the context is what forms or at least I think in our Um, belief and in the book what forms your values which are then the criteria for uh, design so starting I think it's one of the most important steps because if you don't have a good contextual understanding you're sort of setting yourself up for a building that is not going to uh, respond to its context or meet those requirements. Um, In the book we say it's always really important to start with the global and future responsibility positioning you know your site is within a city or within an area within a region within a country within a hemisphere what does that mean Um, and what are the consequences of creating that building Um, and questioning should you be building on this site at all Um, questioning if you're given a sort of greenfield site should you be building on a greenfield site is there a brown uh, or gray field site instead that you could move to is it sustainable to you know actually even start there so it's really starting with those ethical and uh, global issues Um, and then the environment is always a really important part of the site seeing what is the green and blue infrastructure um, what non-human species live there um, how can you sort of coexist um, and also create a concept which allows room for both humans and non-humans. Um, it's And then the people, people is, most of the time we're building buildings for people. So really understanding who are the users of your building, not necessarily the client, but the users, who is going to, what community does this exist in? Um, how are uh, the sort of cycles of the day? How can it give back? Um, And how can it not just sort of add to gentrification um, but actually exist as part of a community? So I think they're the sort of three starting points when it comes to looking at um, your context that we sort of recommend to start with um, and then move to the other ones after
1: that. And it's very much about um, context being a generator of the decisions that come after, so generator of the architecture. Um, You know, and that's both the program, the brief, what kind of architecture, but then also perhaps the choice of materials and so on. Um, You know, and then the language. So, yeah. yeah. So that's and it's very true. We actually never talked about this as content, like, but we are all very much contextual designers ourselves. Absolutely.
0: And and this for me, the thing that jumped out in in the book and in chapter one of the book anyway, was, was this idea of local knowledge. So this idea of knowledge as context as well which I think is a really rewarding idea, but again, very complex to deal with. And is an admission that as architects, we don't have local knowledge. So there's a kind of humility that's required in this kind of transformation of our status and our role, which is very difficult, difficult to achieve because of course our professions, our professional bodies emphasize our exceptionalness by giving awards to massive buildings every time.
1: And to usually a name, an individual, as if one architect, you know, and it's usually to only the architect, not to the design team, which includes all of the stakeholders in it and all of the other designers, as in the engineers, you know, the landscape architects, the ecologists, so it's also never to the, you know, it's always to the architect as if they conceive that alone, you know? So it's always celebrating also that sort of individual practice or the individual, that one person, as if we can create that alone as well, you know? So it's exactly, again, come back to this paradigm shift in our values and that sort of some of these sort of, um, yeah, this idea that we're exceptional and that we have the power uh, to do all that. And actually, it's, it's, I would, yeah, I think humility is, is a nice is there something think, feminine? Working with others.
0: Is there something feminist about what you're promoting? In that, in that, what you're describing seems to me to be kind of archetypically what you would describe as um, top-down, masculine, patriarchal, kind of imposed.
1: because, I mean, if it's feminist, I don't know about you, Liz, I don't think it was necessarily deliberate. It's just as part of sustainability, it's about inclusivity of who we design for, but also who are the designers. Mm-hmm. And and it's also, of course, if we when we talk about values, we are saying we can no longer do these values that we have from colonial times. And when architects are mostly white, male and wealthy, that they're the ones designing cities for everybody that then mm-hmm. actually don't meet the needs of everybody. So what we're saying is be more inclusive, like... Um, find out the local knowledge in the local context, um, and speak to local people. Involve local people. They have that expert knowledge mm. um, of their needs, but also of the you know the area and so on. So it is actually about inclusivity and more democratic processes that the mm. architect is part of, rather than necessary and facilitates that process rather than be the lead designer um, mm. making sole decisions based on their opinion or interpretation. But of course, also as an architect, I think our own experience is also important. Um, It's sort of, Liz mentioned this earlier, how we bring back that, or bring together that messiness, all of that complexity, all of the other, and how we then spatialize that. Mm. But it is taking into account all of these inputs and working with all of other people to achieve that. And that's, of course, again, a paradigm shift in how we create architecture. It's much more collaborative. Um, uh, Yeah. Have Have
0: you tried getting students to do group work?
1: It's so hard. Yeah, they do it. They, was, it's mine, incredible. In uh, yeah. yeah. minor,
2: minor group work masters. They, uh, <laughs> but, I mean, I also have the privilege that my students are 100% in studio. They don't have everything is taught in studio, um, so they have no electives. Um, so I get them for 40 hours a week. So it's a lot easier to uh, encourage them. And they have to be at their desk for 40 hours a week, so they're all present all the time with assigned desks. So for me, group works, they prefer group work than individual. They're part of a
1: community already, aren't they, in that atmosphere? We don't have that. We have no, only for the first years in Erasmus students, they have a desk. Um, but stu- there's a lot of stu- uh, group work um, and collaboration. And um, some teachers assign students to groups based on a questionnaire or like their, their interests or to mix people. Um, and some, like mostly us, we ask them to self-organize um, and to then work together. Um, and there might also be individual components to it that they're responsible for. But um, yeah, I, I think it's important people have a mix of both um, so that they can't hide behind uh, the group as well. Um mm and have to be able to also be able to to be able to make decisions and justify them on their own and position themselves because that's an also how they come into a group as well but i think it's actually very important to have these collaborative processes which then of course mimic the real world a little bit better but ideally we were also more interdisciplinary and that's much harder of course in teaching yeah um, with students from other fields and yeah good
0: question i'm always interested in is scalability how do we scale this up? Because architects, I don't know about in, in in Denmark and Finland, but architects are involved in precious little architecture or precious little building in in Britain. Um, and the more I listen to you, the the, the better I think that is. No, um, the but like so so most of the built environment is not produced by architects, or they have such a minor role in it. Um, so how do we how do we take this thinking? scale it up to the scale of new settlements. There's, for example, just along the coast from where I am uh, in Canterbury, uh, uh, Epps Fleet, they're building a new town. And they are, I clearly by planning decree from the, from, the, from the Secretary of State, have decided that the whole of North Kent is going to be covered in housing. They're just building it everywhere. But this morning I was trying to get to work and the, the, my usual road that I drive down was cut off because they are taking two vast fields during food shortages, and turning them into appalling houses. <clears throat> and I'm guessing someone's getting a backhander somewhere along the line. Um, that's, uh, my conclusion to everything is corruption, but anyway. Um, but how do we scale this thing? Because you work on the scale of the building beautifully in this book. Is it scalable? Or is this kind of granular, situated, democratic, ethnographic, approach that you describe really only amenable to tiny sites, tiny programs. Like, like if you're doing a new master plan
1: for a city, like how the hell do you do that? Again, you collaborate, right?
2: <laughs> but I think it also, I mean, I think quite often we make it harder for ourselves than it sort of, Needs to be. I mean, Ian Gale's been talking about this. I mean, he hasn't called it sustainable, but designing cities for people. I mean, he's been talking about this for decades. Mm-hmm. Following, you know, those design principles, we'd get probably seventy percent of the way in terms of the sort of sustainable settlement, because I think when we're conscious about who we're designing for and the context, so not only the people but the, you know, the non-humans as well. At a larger scale, I think it's, it's easy, not easy, nothing's easy, but it is scalable. Um, But it requires, then, you know, it gets more complex because you're dealing with developers and, you know, larger landowners. But in many ways, actually, it is simpler because you have more control. You can design whole areas. You can sort of understand the systems and the flow. You have control of where water's going, you know, all of that infrastructure. Um, a little bit more than with an individual plot. With an individual plot, you're having to sort of tap into what's already existing or um, try and, you know, DIY the system to make it uh, more sustainable. But that's my sort of perspective on it, Sophie.
1: No, but I also think it comes from a perspective that both in, in the Nordic region, both in Finland and in Denmark, architects are also urban planners. Unlike in the UK, it's usually an extra degree that you do, or your town planner is a separate degree. And, um, yeah, so I think there's, you know, so I think that in our countries, architects are involved in more projects, even though there's no protection of uh, title even and definitely no function. Um, So, yeah, so I think. For me, it's actually, you just collaborate with other architects, more people, but also I think if we've sort of like, for me, there is an upscaling that we're missing that we keep on sort of um, mourning the loss of the power of us as architects that we're not involved in more, but actually the more we go down in this sort of like giving, not really responding to the societal needs and not changing our values, the less relevant we will become uh, of what we can offer to society. Um, or to only the very few who can then afford architects. And then we're back to creating our, the architecture becomes an even more uh, privileged kind of profession. And the people who do it and can afford to do it are, again, less and less diverse. So for me, if we can actually find a role within the current century and 20, and and forward, and we have so much to offer, Mm. to help resolve some of these issues and act as facilitators in exactly this upscaling and these big developments. And that means some architects like non-conforming Austria, they end up, and, and I think also Architecture Autogere with Donna Petrescu, they end up becoming facilitators of projects and processes um, and other collaborations that are happening between developer and landowners and the city and some other architects. So. But if we keep on sort of wanting to look at being an architect is to be one of the star architects and make a lot of money and only do buildings that are shiny and whatever, then then we're doomed. Then there is no scaling of that. But I think if we can actually understand the issues that require our skills as architects, that creative thinking, that um, often lateral thinking, connecting of different aspects and the collaborative aspects, um, then I think we can really scale up you know our value and get involved in many more projects and I bet you the project the housing there's probably architects involved in that maybe not very good architects or architects that you know are yeah it's bread and butter of course but um, yeah so I don't have the answers to that necessarily but um, yeah so I do think it's it must be uh, we, we have to be able to scale it up because if we don't We are not anywhere near creating the restorative environments that we should be creating and we are going to be, you know, having huge biodiversity loss, land loss and buildings that actually are not going to withstand the next, um, not going to stand for the next 40, 50 years and only contribute to climate change um, and to other kind of injustices. Um so I I have to believe that every day my teaching and my research, otherwise I'll just get depressed and want to retire. (laughs) So
2: but I think also the planet's gonna force us to. I mean, London can't stand summers of 40 degrees for more than a few days. I mean, it's when our societies are not are not built for the climate emergency. So sooner or later, if we don't do it by choice, it's gonna be by force from from nature, because, you know, we, ca- we cannot continue to live and build the way that we do, the, like, it, it won't happen, it can't happen,
1: and we won't be alive very, to see it. Yeah, and maybe very briefly on this sort of, like, um, this deep contextual background research, you know, that we should do before we make decisions actually while it's time consuming you gain that time back by making the right decisions and you save money by then actually being able to you have a position you have the information you need you can respond to new information coming in you collaborate with other people and you all have one vision you move uh you move towards um and very good architects tend to work that way actually um, and I think it's very you can scale that up very well, but you have that, you then have that grounding in the project. You have all the information. So you're not putting um, unnecessary wind turbines or solar panels in places. You actually have really know you know that you've got the best orientation and the best views and the best daylight already from the starting point. You've really minimized energy use, you maximizing and optimizing health and well-being so and of humans and of nature and, and other uh, beings. So I think you know, you, you really, um, it's an upfront investment you make into the design process um, that pays back. Um.
0: Well, that was wonderful. I think that's a wonderful point to finish on. Um, a positive note, um, a crisis note, and a positive note. So, thank you very, very much.
1: Well, thank you for having us thank here. Thank Yeah, and putting up with uh, my, as I said, my slight sort of uh, not quite Finnish because I don't speak Finnish, but <laughs> like I'm not, not, uh, yeah, not being a native speaker. So I thought I, I thought, have no, I have no excuse.
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that was the sale of the century. Amazing stuff and an excellent resource. Thanks hugely to Sophie and Liz for being part of this, for the book and their generosity. Thanks also to Helen Castle and Alex White at Reba Publishing. Please see the podcast description for links to the books, to Sophie and Liz's social and professional links. And don't forget to like, subscribe, follow and share Ears for Architecture, far and worldwide. Cheers.